0: Well, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open it to Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. Today, we come to the gravitational center of the book of Philippians. Everything else in the entire letter revolves around this passage. And as the Apostle Paul pulls us into its orbit, he begins with a word that we might be tempted to just skim over without much thought. But its importance can't be overestimated. He begins, therefore. Now, anytime you come to the word therefore in the Bible, You need to stop and ask what it's there for. It means that everything that he's about to say is predicated on what he's said up until now. Well, up until now in the letter, Paul has had a singular focus. He's obsessed with Jesus, overjoyed, by the way, the story of Jesus is spreading in Philippi, uh, even despite the fact that uh, some people are preaching from selfish motives, and despite the fact that it's meant his own persecution and imprisonment. He's bubbling over with affection for the Philippians because they are kindred spirits with him in their love for Jesus. But just below the surface, you can sense a nagging concern, the real reason he's written this letter. And you sense it in the way that he prays that their love would abound still more. Something, Paul feels, is lacking in their love and is jeopardizing the harmony that he wants them to experience. He continues, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Paul's actually being a bit cheeky here with his use of the word if. Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Philippi, and he better than anyone knew just how much they'd been impacted by Jesus how the love of God had captivated them and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit had knit them together as a community. He knew that they felt as much affection for him as he felt for them. As he wrote these words, you know, I think he anticipated the nodding heads in the room. Yes, Paul, yes, we've experienced that. Yes, we feel the same way. And he goes on and says, if you've had all this experience, if you feel this way, then make my joy complete it's funny because Paul started the letter by gushing about how much joy he felt for them, but now he seems to suggest that his joy isn't complete. That word complete that he uses means filled to the full. And Paul suggests that his joy is like a cup that's only half full. So what's lacking? Well, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What Paul suggests is lacking in their participation in the gospel is what he calls like-mindedness. Now, the word mind appears several times in this passage, and it's important that we understand what Paul does and doesn't mean by it. He's not talking about their mental or cognitive functions. You know, He's not looking for a shared beliefs and opinions about ideas. It's more of a mindset. He's looking for a shared outlook uh, or orientation or attitude towards life. Paul never advocates for cult-like conformity around ideas or opinions, but about, for Christ-like unity around their orientation towards others. You know, Paul wants the entire community to be aligned around a shared vision for life that is centered on what he refers to as the same love. And it's the very same love that he just reminded them that they've experienced from God in Jesus. And he says if that love can abound still more, then they will be able to be one in spirit, literally one soul, and to be able to function as if they're one person. Some scholars have suggested that the the best word to encapsulate this idea of a love-fueled, soul-sharing oneness in a community is actually the word harmony, the very word we've used to title this series in Philippians. You know, from a musical perspective, harmony is when you play different notes and you play them simultaneously to create one pleasing chord. But you know, not all notes played together at the same time make a pleasing chord. There's another musical term for a bunch of notes being played at the same time where there's no harmony, and that word is discord. It sounds like this. You know, where harmony is beautifully pleasing and inspiring. Discordance is uh, abrasive and off-putting. The sound of a gun firing or a car crash or a bomb exploding, that's discordancy. It's ugly and violent. It's my kid's favorite song to play on the piano. Now, Paul says that the Philippian church ought to reverberate with harmony, not discord. Different notes, yes, individual diversity intact, but coming together as a single chord of collective unity. You know, not just a bunch of soloists clashing and competing for attention, but a gospel choir learning how to blend their voices and their lives into one. Now, in order to achieve this, Paul says that they've got to address two hard attitudes or mindsets that are threatening to undo all the work that Jesus has done in them and is continuing to do. Uh, He warns them, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, selfish ambition, Paul's already talked about this when he talked about those who were preaching out of selfish motives. You know, it's an egocentric, self-promoting orientation, a me-first mindset, you know, and when he talks about ambition, he's not talking about drive, he's talking about rivalry, you know, suggesting that he's not really thinking about just narcissistical self-centeredness, but actually a competitive self-orientation. It's the kind of me-first attitude that plays itself out relationally. You know, we've all met selfish ambition, that, that person who has a unique talent for making everything about them. They dominate conversations and you know, use friendships to advance their own self-interest with a win-at-all-cost attitude. Vain conceit, on the other hand, uh, is actually an intentional oxymoron, You know, like jumbo shrimp or friendly fire or social distancing. You know, conceit, on the one hand, is elevating yourself above others. Well, vanity, uh, we might confuse that with conceit sometimes, but vanity, it's not just looking in the mirror for too long. Um, it's actually like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. It's meaningless, worthless, empty. Vain conceit, or literally empty glory is elevating yourself above others for no real reason at all. And like a celebrity who's never really done anything worth celebrating. They're just famous for being famous. We've all met empty glory before. You know, the know-it-all, who doesn't seem to have a clue what they're talking about. You know, the person with the larger-than-life ego. When you get to know them, the more you dig, the less you find. They always seem to rise to the top, but you kind of get the sense that it's just because they're full of hot air. Paul says that his cup of joy is only half full, because empty glory and selfish ambition are eroding their harmony and stirring up discord in the community. And so he corrects them, saying, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not only looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Pulitzer fire Cure for Selfish Ambition uh, is an others' orientation, you know, not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, setting yourself aside in order to see somebody else get ahead. Now, to be clear, uh, he's not talking about self-neglect. You know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, not instead of yourself. Self-care is a really important part of being emotionally and spiritually healthy. And in fact, we did a whole series on this last August called Soul Care that you can check out online. But self-care... Is not the same thing as selfish ambition. Paul says that for love to abound still more in a community of harmony, we need to set aside our own self interests in order to center and spotlight the needs and experiences of others. For empty glory, Paul prescribes a healthy dose of humility. You know, rather than highlighting my own self importance, learning to value others above yourself. Humility lays down its pride, and as Eugene Peterson translates this verse, forgets myself long enough to lend a helping hand. And we need to also be on guard for false humility. You know, this isn't just, woe is me, I'm a piece of garbage. That's not what Paul is looking for. C.S. Lewis says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's actually just thinking of yourself less. In order for love to abound still more in a community of harmony, we need to surrender our desire for significance and prominence and status in order to see other people honored instead. Finally, knowing as any good preacher does, that you can make a good sermon great with the perfect closing song, Paul turns to one of the Bible's greatest hits. In fact, it's a hymn that's believed to have been written by St. Paul himself, but it was one that the Philippian church knew and loved. And I almost get this sense that when the reader got to this part of the letter, they would have started singing the song as the whole congregation joined in in four-part harmony. Uh, He kicks it off by saying, he introduces the hymn by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is the hymn. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found as in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now, there's so much richness and more in these song lyrics than we could possibly unpack in even an hour, let alone in the few minutes remaining. Besides, you know, explaining a song is kind of like dissecting a frog. You know, you can learn a lot about the frog, but you end up killing it. Um, So uh, not wanting to turn Paul's beautiful, rich hymn into the spiritual equivalent of a dead frog, um, I do want us to notice a couple of things. First, you know, with humility and others' orientation on his mind, Paul appeals not to their common sense or to their conscience, or even to their mutual affection for him, but to the example of Jesus. And he begins by looking at what Jesus did as God. He says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now this clever but fairly confusing sentence almost makes it seem like Jesus was Something a little bit less than God or that he had to set aside his Godness in order to humble himself like this. And that's the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to say. Paul is saying that Jesus humbled himself not despite or although he was God, but precisely because he was in very nature God. Jesus is showing us the very nature of God. And when it says that he... Uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He's not saying that Jesus couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, Most scholars agree that he's actually alluding to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who uh, grasped at equality with God. It says that they tried to become like God by literally grasping at forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve grasped at undeserved and unearned power and privilege for themselves but Jesus didn't grasp at but gave up rightful power and privilege for the sake of others. Now this kind of grasping at self-advancement and superiority it is in direct opposition to the gospel and the very nature of God that we see in Jesus. Who Paul goes on to say, you know, he he emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking on the form Of a servant. Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He became a nobody, a zero, willingly subjugating himself in service to the needs of others. He didn't insist on his own rights or cling to his privileges. He willingly surrendered them for the sake of others, trading in status for service. This selfless, self-imposed subordination to others is Jesus showing us exactly what God is really like. But because Jesus was not just fully God, but also fully human, uh, he also goes on to show us what true humanity is really like. And Paul continues saying that uh, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus was selfless in the face of humiliation, disgrace, and even death. You know, this kind of humility doesn't really make sense to us. And think about it, Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived. And yet he upends all of our ideas about what it means to be great. You know, winners win. They don't lose on purpose. Leaders lead. They don't follow, much less submit and obey. There's not a verse two to we are the champions that talks about humble sacrifice. Jesus teaches his disciples that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those are the real champions, according to Jesus. Now, we need to appreciate that uh, the people who heard Jesus talk like this, and as Paul passes the teachings of Jesus on to the Philippians, I mean, they would have heard this as nothing less than utter nonsense. It would have been ridiculous to them. See, in in the ancient world, Humility was not considered to be a virtue. It was a vice. Meekness was seen as weakness. If somebody called you humble, they were insulting you. And frankly, it's not that much different today. NBA superstar Charles Barkley once said, "You know, the meek may inherit the earth, but they're not getting the ball from me. We admire and worship that kind of bravado, power, and success. Our cultural heroes are CEOs and celebrity billionaires. You know, there's no Oscar for the actor who quietly turned down a role because he thought someone else was better for it. When it comes to our ideas of greatness, humility just doesn't factor in. But according to Jesus... Humility, this kind of selfless, submissive, sacrificial humility is what humanity looks like when we are at our very best. So guided by the example of Jesus, Paul's message is clear. Replace selfish ambition with an other's orientation. Trade in empty glory for humility. Just like Jesus to the glory of God. You know, here as he concludes Paul does something poetically masterful. It's really it's really incredible. He he contrasts this idea of empty glory that he's trying to get them to reject by describing the way that Jesus emptied himself to the glory of God. Not empty glory, but self-emptying to the glory of God. So what does it mean for us to embrace the mindset of Christ? What does it look like for us to embrace humility and another's orientation? Well, for starters, it means we stop acting like the world revolves around us. You know, we reject our impulses for, uh, you know, attention seeking and credit grabbing. We stop grasping for more and better and instead learn how to give generously. We get comfortable learning to be a nobody Like a friend of mine once wrote, we learn the blessing of having nothing, of being no one, a person of no reputation, no agenda, no accomplishments, no legacy. We realize and embrace the idea that a life well lived is a life of quiet, humble service to others. Practically speaking around here, it means that You know, here on Sunday mornings, we don't show up to show off how spiritual I am, but to humbly and quietly empty myself in sacrifice. You know, I don't think about how this service serves me, but of how I can be of service to God and to all of you. You know, that could look like if you drive to church on Sundays, you know, maybe taking the farthest away parking spot and saving the good spots for someone else, maybe a new person who might come a little bit later. Or when you walk into a room like this, rather than insecurely wondering who's gonna sit with me, maybe prayerfully asking, who can I go sit with to extend the warmth and welcome of Jesus? In our relationships, it means taking a genuine interest in the lives of others, becoming a good question asker and a great listener. If you're part of a life group, it means you don't speak up just to hear the sound of your voice or flex your Bible knowledge, but you actually pay attention to the quieter people in the group. And encourage their participation. And when they do share, you, know, you stifle that little voice in you that wants to one-up their story with one of your own. It means intentionally relinquishing my privilege to center those on the margins and balance the scales for the oppressed, intentionally downgrading my lifestyle in order to upgrade the quality of life for someone else. It means loving the people or person I find hardest to love by treating them as if they matter more than I do. In my marriage, it means treating my partner like they are the king or queen of the relationship, whose wish is my command. And if I'm fortunate enough to be able to be the caregiver or guardian to a a child or an aging parent or a vulnerable person, it means recognizing that their dignity and agency actually takes priority over my desire for control or comfort. It means that we don't worship at the shrine of self-promotion on social media. You know, image crafting and curating uh, highlight real profiles that spotlight the perfect friendships or family or vacation while other people are sitting there feeling like garbage. And we don't measure ourselves by the number of friends and followers, likes and clicks that we can accumulate. But instead we measure ourselves in small, simple, quiet unseen, uncelebrated acts of kindness and generosity, a life lived in humble service to others. You know, I mentioned earlier that the Apostle Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Philippi. Well, earlier this week, um, we actually had a funeral, uh, a celebration of life for the founding pastor of this church, a man named John Eckert. Uh, John was the lead pastor of our church for 16 years and was instrumental in handing over the keys to the family business over the next generation, so to speak. And uh, Jeff at the funeral was reflecting on the fact that when John stepped aside and Jeff was actually on the job the very first Sunday, he was in his little office you know, preparing to preach his sermon when he heard a tap at the door. And when he opened the door, it was John. He was standing there with an usher badge on. And he gave him a military salute and said, good morning, boss, reporting for duty. You know, John was a hero to us for a lot of reasons, but not least of which because he'd never made a big deal of himself. He didn't need to be somebody important. He didn't need to ram through his agenda at the expense of others. John was first in line to be last in line. Glad, happy to be able to take a smaller role for himself If it meant greater investment in the community and the church. John didn't didn't need to be up front or on stage, but showed up with a here to serve attitude, quietly, submissively, here to show up for business, show up for duty. Because John had the mindset of Christ, humble, others oriented. So what about you and me? To what degree does selfish ambition still play a role in my heart? You know, how much do we still crave a little bit of that empty glory? This morning when you came in, you were given a name tag and on it it says here to serve. A question for you today is, are you? Are you here to serve? And I don't just mean here at church, but I mean here in your life, in your home, you know, with your family, with your friends, at work or at school, in your neighborhood, in our community? Are you here to, to treat other people as if they're more important than you and me? Are we here to invest and take an interest in the lives of others? Can we truly say that our lives are about bringing humble service to others and making that our mission? And if we do, could our love abound still more? Could our lives be filled to the full with joy? And could we finally enjoy the gift that God wants us to experience of true and real harmony? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your example of how you laid your life down freely and fully, willingly for us, how you were humble to the point even of death on a cross, sacrificing for others with no thought of yourself. Jesus says, we open ourselves and we submit ourselves to you. Would you form that same kind of humility and others' orientation in us? Teach us to live every moment of every day with a here-to-serve attitude. For your sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen.